Well, good morning to all of you. Happy Mother's Day. So you've probably never heard of Carol Shields, but she was an American-born Canadian novelist and a short story writer, a Pulitzer Prize winner. About 20 years ago, she wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal. It was titled, The Ties That Bind. Family is one of the few certainties we will take with us far into the future. And she described how her six-year-old grandson, he spotted the set of radio towers out the car window, and he called them a family. And, and she reasoned, and this is her words, that the symbolic configuration of a family must live at the very front of his brain. And then she made this observation. She said, human beings are social creatures, interdependent economically, linked to each other by emotional need, sexual desire, and the drive to perpetuate their species. This Darwinian truth may seem reductive, but it isn't so easily set aside. Even now, this sometimes willful and stubbornly independent child sitting in the back seat must sense that he isn't able to stand outside the family rubric. Rubric, He would perish. His existence would be without meaning. Now, clearly, her concept of family is not based on Scripture. However, she's fully on board with the notion that family is part of what it means to be human. And isn't that universally recognized? Family means something to nearly everyone. Our family relationships, they may be dysfunctional, but we still want them to, or or wish they would, function in the right way, the way they're supposed to work. But what does that really mean? Is there truly a right way for families to function? The book of Ephesians has a lot to say about this, perhaps more than we realize. For instance, Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, it informed us about the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So God the Father shows us perfect fatherhood. Our earthly concepts of, of everything are really marred by sin, so we're dependent on the Scriptures for what perfect fatherhood really should look like. Then we have Ephesians five thirty one where Paul quotes Genesis 2. We talked about it last week. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that came before sin entered the world. So we've had family structure from the beginning. Sin just made the relationships very difficult. They don't work like they're supposed to. In the earlier chapters of Ephesians, they lay out God's plan of salvation. But when the Father sent the Son into the world to live a sinless life, it's God's perfect sacrifice, notice, he didn't circumvent the family. It was his tool to bring the sinless human nature of the Son of God to maturity. Luke 2.52, it describes it. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Plus, Luke tells us he was submissive to his parents, even though they were merely redeemed sinners. So even under those circumstances, family structure accomplished God's purpose. 
And the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, they're so helpful to guide our thinking on family relationships. You can find the passage. It's on page 979 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. You can grab the outlines in your bulletin. And this is applicable to all of us, whether we actually live in a traditional family unit or not. It's applicable. Because family ties are fundamental to what God created. Because our immediate family, um, beyond them, it also teaches us about living in God's church, is the family of God. So let's, uh, let's look at Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, Paul set the table for us in Ephesians so we can understand these verses really well. He referenced the example of God's perfect fatherhood, And the Father gave us family structure to help us walk in righteousness and submission to Him. But sin has made family relationships difficult. Families don't function the the way that they're supposed to, according to God's design. So Paul's going to put these relationships in their correct context for us. We're going to look at family ties in the Lord because they're, one, right for maturity, two, right for motivation, and three, right for direction. So, Maturity, motivation, direction. Why do I say family ties in the Lord give us the right basis for these things? We'll start with the phrase at the end of verse 1. It says, for this is right. And we take our cue from that phrase for all of our points. But they're all supported by a foundational relationship statement What exactly is the right foundation? It's children obeying their parents in the Lord. That's what's right. And we'll see later how verses 2 through 4, they build on this foundation that we're given in verse 1. But what does Paul mean by right? What does he want to clarify with that? He's saying that this is righteous behavior. It pleases God. It's according to the way God designed it to function. But Paul's also implying that it's self-evident. Self-evident. How do you describe the kind of behavior that you think is correct and should be plain and obvious to everyone? You say it's the right thing to do. That's what Paul's saying here. So then, why is the obedience of a child to their parent right for maturity? That's the first point in your outline. Should that be obvious to us? We, yeah, think about it the way that uh, this, in this way. Think about the way that a child physically matures. What if a baby refused milk and food from his or her mother? We would say that isn't right. They need that those things to grow up. What if a toddler refused to accept a parent's help in learning how to walk or talk? We know that isn't right. We should be concerned because it's contrary to normal human physical development. 
And the need for parental care in that development is very clear, but it's so critical that the child cooperate if they can. So in verse 1, Paul is concerned not only about physical development, but spiritual development too. Does he think that's obvious as well? Yes, but why would he think that? Well, first he talks about obeying in the Lord. That indicates a spiritual component, but there's more. Paul has just been talking about this exact idea in chapter 5. Spiritual maturity. Go back to chapter 5, verse 15 for a second. It says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Walking wisely. Isn't that spiritual maturity? Isn't it? He follows with verse 17. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't we think of foolishness as immaturity? Doesn't spiritual maturity mean that we do as the Lord commands us according to Scripture? And then this culminates in what he says in verse 21 of chapter 5. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Isn't Paul offering that as a picture of maturity in the church family? And Paul's statement about submission in, in verse 21, it sets the context for the portions that follow, all of them, including the relationship between parent and child. So, let's step back and think of it this way. It's like standing in line at the grocery store and watching children interact with their parents. Do you do that? If you see a child ignoring their parent and throwing a tantrum, do you think that's right? Do you think that's mature behavior? What if the parent doesn't do anything about it? What if they lash out in frustration? What do you assume about the maturity of that parent? So do you see why Paul can say that the obedience of children to their parents is not only right, but that the rightness of it is self-evident? He already set the context for spiritual maturity. And note that he, he specifically addresses now both children and parents. His implicit assumption is that this letter is being read to the entire church, including families, in the worship service. So everyone, including children who can understand, has perspective on the first five chapters of Ephesians when they come to chapter 6, verse 1. Now look at point A. Let's consider what godly obedience means. When Paul says, children, obey your parents. I think of what Jesus says in, in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But if children aren't mature enough yet to understand the full meaning of Christ's commandments for the believer, how do they express their love for Christ? How do they learn and show that they want to follow Christ. Well, it begins with baby steps. They start learning to submit to their parents in obedience. Now, obedience in this verse, it's doing what you're told to do, but it's also about hearing. So it's hear and obey. 
the child must know why it's important to obey. Can you see why it's important for parents then to understand everything that Paul's been just talking about in chapter 5? Parents need to be walking in wisdom themselves. And they also need to understand the Lord's will communicated through Scripture. And they need to be submitting to Christ themselves. In other words, parents need to be maturing too. Otherwise, they have nothing to give their child that's really worth hearing. All they can tell them is, because I said so. And that's not the idea here at all. Let's build on this further. What does it mean for children to be obedient in the Lord? The phrase in the Lord is about what the children are doing, not the parents. So let's understand this correctly. This is not emphasizing that parents are parenting unto the Lord. It's not that children must accept their parents' word as from the Lord. What it emphasizes is that children obey their parents for the sake of the Lord. So if a child loves the Lord, they learn to express it by hearing and obeying their parents. But it's not really that simple, is it? Why? Because the process involves a lot of disobedience in order to learn obedience. Parents give commands. The child disobeys and is corrected. The child then obeys and is commended. But it's typically not a smooth and an easy progression, is it? And it can seem slow. I'm sure there are many parents out there saying amen to that, maybe. But isn't the same true for parents? Why do you keep sinning when you know what the Lord has already commanded? Becoming mature in Christ, it's an ongoing process for all redeemed sinners, and it takes time and effort. Proverbs 22.15 tells us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. They're born immature. They need the loving but firm discipline of parents to teach them to submit their will to the Lord and become mature. So, let's consider this for a moment. I want you to think about how quickly most of God's creatures mature. An insect that enters a short life is fully mature, very little development at all. Mammals, they take a little longer, but inside of a year, they're typically hunting their own food and fending for themselves. By those standards, human children are quite immature when they come into the world. But don't humans have a higher calling, too? And isn't their existence more complex than the rest of God's creation? Human children require a lot of attention, and they struggle if they're left to themselves. Full maturity takes a comparatively long time. They need the care and guidance of committed, well-intentioned parents. Now, let's consider and let's apply what godly obedience means practically for children and parents. This is point B. Because... This is not just about the process of maturing children. Children help, help their parents become more mature too, don't they? Because 
the relationship between child and parent teaches both how to deal with authority. Authority in their lives. Do you see how that relates to learning submission? The child submits to the parent, so he or she learns how to be under authority and be fruitful and, and productive. And the parent is responsible for their child, so they're learning how to use their authority unselfishly in the interest of the child. And both Paul and Peter, they agree about the importance of learning to be under authority. Remember Romans 13 too? Whoever resists authorities resists what God's appointed. Or 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, for this is the will of God. Don't people often struggle when they're under authority? But Christians must learn to be fruitful and productive under all kinds of authority. And children, they learn this from being under the authority of their parents. We have so many authority structures that we need to navigate well. So many. Think with me on this for a moment. Do you want an education? You'll need to be under a teacher. Do you want to play sports? You're under a coach. How about music? You're under an instructor. Do you want a job? You'll have a boss. Run your own company. Still have customers to please. And a government that's going to regulate your activities. Children. I hope you can see there are all sorts of benefits if you learn to be under authority. So obey your parents. But most importantly, respond rightly to the authority of Jesus Christ. And, and don't people also struggle when they're in authority to use it well? I mean, misuse of authority, isn't that a real problem? So by having children, parents learn about authority too. They learn to use their authority and build others up into maturity. Why do you think one of the qualifications of an elder is that he first be able to manage his own household before he can take care of God's church? 1 Timothy 3.5 Leadership, maturity, it's demonstrated by how authority is used within your own family. So, what defines you as a parent? Those of you who are parents, what defines you? For you, is it about control? Or glorying in your child's achievements? Or giving your child a better life than you had? Are you pressuring your child to obey all your parental desires and wishes well into their adult life? Instead, you need to gradually transition your own authority over to them. That means getting them ready to follow Christ on their own initiative. It may mean preparing them to leave father and mother and be joined to a wife or husband. It's showing them how to eventually become capable parents themselves. Children are not ours to use for our own satisfaction. They're under the authority of God, as we are. Parenting 
can teach us to relinquish our authority gradually and responsibly while trusting the child's welfare to Jesus Christ. Most importantly, we're all living to, learning to live under Christ's authority. Why do we submit to the authorities in our lives? Why do we do that? Is it because we trust the authorities themselves? No. It's because we trust Christ. That's why. He really holds all the authority. Ephesians 1.21 says that Jesus Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named. And not only in this age, but also in the one to come. As Christ followers, aren't we also all under his authority in the church? That means we're under the leadership of our local church. The author of Hebrews 13.17 tells Christians, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is something that we all need to learn as a member of God's family. And parents have the special privilege of guiding their children into maturity. So, as we move on to the second point, please notice there's something else that's self-evident. Our family relationships motivate us. They motivate us. Much of what we do is driven by family considerations. Isn't that also right? Paul says yes, if it's in line with the familiar Old Testament commandment. And this commandment's motivating because it comes in the form of a blessing. Maintaining good family relations isn't something we just do because we have to do it. No, God's commandment gives us the reasons why family ties in the Lord are also right for motivation. So look at the quotation in verses 2 and 3. It says, Honor your father and mother. And then, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So let's consider three motivations in particular. Honor in the family, B, the promise of God, and C, doing well on earth. Now, we respect our parents because they have special status in our life. That's pretty obvious. But honor means that we place value on them. Demonstrated in practical and concrete ways. If you've ever lived in a farming community where family farms are passed between generations, then you probably might grasp this better. Property creates an economic connection between children and parents. Israel was like that when God gave them this commandment, but aren't we all still able to relate to that little proverb that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 12, 14? He says, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So there's an emotional and a financial connection in the way that family members care for one another. And God calls on both children and parents to act honorably. 
This relationship's designed, listen, so that neither takes advantage of the other and that each looks out for the interests of the other. Isn't that also true in our church family? So have you ever seen, think about this, that bumper sticker driving around? It says, we're spending our children's inheritance. Have you ever seen that one? I know it's supposed to be a joke, but I wonder... Is there a selfish attitude behind that sticker? Are these parents no longer taking an interest in the welfare of their children? Really? And doesn't that invite the children to respond selfishly back to their parents? I'm not at all saying that you need to give a big inheritance to your children. Don't misunderstand me. But selfishness does not encourage honorable motivations or behavior in a family. So, think about your own situation. Maybe you have irresponsible parents, irresponsible parents that have frustrated you. Or perhaps you have irresponsible parents, but they become poor and needy despite all their hard work and their planning. We may struggle to respond with wisdom in these situations, but don't let selfishness Take over. Don't allow it to take over. Don't be like the people in Mark 7. They didn't want to help their parents. And the Pharisees were making excuses for them. But Jesus chided them. Here's what Jesus said. He said, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God. By your tradition. And Paul's clear about the Lord's will in 1 Timothy 5.4. Listen carefully to what he says. He says that children or grandchildren must first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So Paul points out another basis for motivation in verse 2, the promise of God. That's point B. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise. Most commandments, they contain what? A verse or a curse for violation, right? But for children who honor their parents, the Lord promises a special blessing. Paul used the promise of God as a motivating factor throughout Ephesians to urge believers to live righteously. For example, look back at Ephesians 3.6, which says, Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Why are promises like this? So motivating. Because God is fully reliable when he makes these promises. And he has the power to keep them all without fail. And his great promise of salvation was fulfilled by raising Jesus Christ from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So, when we obey God's will in our family relationships... What are we expressing? We're expressing our confidence in God. 
That's what we're expressing. We can endure difficult family situations and hardships. Why? Because we trust God. We aren't relying on sentimental feelings and a sense of duty to motivate us. Much more than that, we know God is faithful. And so we do what we do in order to please Him. Okay, so it was years ago, uh, this is a personal illustration, I was given copies of the correspondent between my grandparents, my grandmother and my grandfather. Um, and he, my grandfather was in the Pacific Theater during World War II. And he was gone for nearly five years. I can't imagine that. And there are a lot of letters and, and telegrams. And when I began reading them, I noticed that he kept reassuring my grandmother that he was being faithful to her. And he wanted the same promises from her. He returned from the war, and by all accounts, they'd been faithful and remained so for the rest of their lives. But I could sense his anxiety in those letters. I could sense it. Promises between humans, they have their limits, even with the ones we love dearly. But God always delivers on his promises. A third basis for motivation comes in verse 3. It says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Or as some translations put it, that you may live long on the earth. This verse is not talking about eternal life. It's well-being in this current life. We may have many ideas about well-being, but this probably refers to families thriving in the context of society. Thriving. A family doesn't thrive without some stability and discipline. In ancient Israel, it meant that parents could have their disobedient child stoned to death. What great motivation to obey your parents and live a long life, right? But think about it in our context today. Isn't it difficult to thrive in an environment where families don't care about each other and they fight all the time? That's difficult to thrive in that environment. So think about verse 3 as something you would find in the book of Proverbs. It's a rule to live by and something to rely on. Allow for exceptions. It may not handle every contingency. But it's generally true of life. So then to apply this Think about, who doesn't want to do well? Who doesn't want to do well? And who isn't concerned about themselves? Family and honor, God's promises, they're good reasons for motivation, but so is our own well-being. We have to be taught to care for others, don't we? But caring for ourselves, that comes pretty naturally. Family ties in the Lord help us to maximize our joy in this present life. And that applies to our church family too. But while doing well in life can motivate us, it's short-lived, short-lived. It'll come to an end. Then we'll face our eternity. And the only thing, the only thing that will matter at that time will be whether God's eternal promises apply 
to you. Do they? Are you following Christ? Will you receive the promises that believers receive in Christ? The book of Ephesians calls you to trust Christ for your salvation. Then you can have certainty in these promises that God will save you personally. And in Christ, you can become a member of God's family. You may be far off now, but the blood of Christ can bring you near to God's throne. So now as we come to our third point, let's make a few connections. Remember I said we were going to make some connections? To verse 1, Paul started this passage by addressing children, but he ends with a reciprocal command to parents. So he completes the thought that he started in verse 1. The passage also began with obedience that's in the Lord. Remember that? Now we're about to end with discipline and instruction that's of the Lord. And we started with maturity. I know you remember that. But we also end there. Parents are now instructed to bring them up, meaning they're children. But here's what's self-evident for parents. There are two directions that family relationships can take. Two directions. And if we want to have family ties in the Lord, it's obvious which one of them is the right direction. So let's look more closely now at these two directions. Before Paul gets to the positive, he deals with the negative, provocation. That's point A, what not to do. Verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a pretty staggering statement, isn't it? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now Paul's also talking to mothers here. But fathers have headship responsibility in the family. And fathers can be especially prone and good at, unfortunately, provoking their children. But Paul charges them to prevent it from becoming a family problem. Don't think of it as temporary anger, though. That flares up in any family, occasionally. It's a pattern of treatment that gradually builds into resentment. Eventually, the anger boils over into outward hostility. That's what we're talking about. It's a difficult relationship to have when you're all living under the same roof. Now, most parents, they want their children to follow their direction. But here's the irony. You need to catch this. Parents that provoke their children to anger, they undermine their own work as a parent. They undermine it. In fact, the more they guide their child down a certain path, the more he or she wants to go in the opposite direction. And so often, 
we blow past the warning signs in our own pride. And we keep pressing towards failure. Now, I want you to see this. And I'm not a mechanic, but you don't have to be a mechanic to know what happens when sand gets stuck in the gears. What happens? It grinds until something goes wrong. And typically there's warning signs before the problem becomes too severe, but if they're ignored, the machinery will break. It results in anything from a minor repair to a major breakdown. And similarly, family ties, which bind, can also grind. So let me tell you about my own personal experience with this. When my first two children were young, I could become very angry when I was correcting them. Certain situations, they just frustrate me. And I'd go on a rant, and they'd get the brunt of it. So when our third child came along, after an interval of 11 years, my wife decided to have a serious talk with me. She said she just couldn't stand by if I did this again. I, I know it wasn't easy for her to have that conversation with me, but I'm so grateful that she did. And it took me weeks to cut, recover from the devastation that I felt at the time. Really, literally, weeks. So why am I grateful? I'm grateful that family ties worked. They worked. I had a wife that confronted me about my sin. I had children that continued to love me, even though I tried their patience on so many occasions. And most of all, I'm grateful to God for his kindness and for his mercy. Fatherhood's a humbling experience. It is. It's humbling. But Peter and James both emphasize that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We need, hear me, we need to turn from our sinful methods of parenting. So what about you? What about you? If you could write a letter to your past self, maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago, what advice would you give yourself? if you've been a parent that long? Were there sinful patterns which you can now see that damaged your relationship with your children? Things like pushing too hard for achievement, failing to sacrifice for them, playing favorites among siblings, using love as a tool of reward and punishment, or physical or verbal abuse. It's never too late to humble yourself and apologize. You can also share your experience with younger parents or would-be parents or future parents who are the same age as your past self. And younger parents, you do well to listen with humility.
the older I get, the more I realize how much I still don't know about parenting. However, there's hope. The close nature of our family relationships, they can also be the means of correcting our sinful methods of parenting. Why is that? Why is that? Because, well, there isn't much to hide when you're living together on a daily basis, is there? That can lead in a negative direction, but it can also lead in a positive direction, and that's point B in your outline. Rather, bring them up in the Lord. Verse 4 says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Think of it like this. The right way for a child to be brought up to physical and spiritual maturity is the constant example of godly parents. Constant example. The parent who displays the fruit of the Spirit, especially self-control, is able to administer discipline in the right way. And the parent who is wise and understands the Lord's will, they're able to give instruction in the right way. So behave in a manner, in such a manner, that you invite your child to respond positively to you and to Jesus Christ. The actions for bringing children up in the Lord, they're the same ones that help you grow as a Christian. Same ones. Reading and studying your Bible, hearing God's word preached and taught, submitting to Christ, unselfishly loving the people of God, and putting sin to death. As you grow in these things, you build your parenting skills too. Then, you get to pour what you've learned into the life of your child. You do this by cherishing them and training them. And those are two things you want to do, very naturally. So desire Christian maturity for yourself. And then give the fruit of that maturity to your child or your children. Now, as we think about ourselves, I've heard many people talk, many young people talk about how stressful parenting can be. And maybe you're newer to parenting, and so you can feel that way too. But I'd ask you, whose expectations are you trying to meet? Be clear about that. Is Paul laying down qualifications that are too difficult for you? What's he asking? All he's asking you to do is put the love you already have for your child or your children into action. Put love into action. Place your child's welfare above your own. Sacrifice for them. Discipline them with love. Instruct them in love. And tell them about the one you love, above all, Jesus Christ. They don't need their own personal 24 by 7 preacher. They need you to be dad. Or they need you to be Mom, they need someone to walk with them who is wiser than they are. That's what they need. 
And if you know the Lord, then they're already blessed beyond measure. So let me conclude. I I want to return to what I said at the outset. Family ties. They've been a blessing from God from the beginning. But sins made the relationships very difficult. And God is still using these relationships, still using them to teach us about submission. And what does submission take? Humility. It takes humility. For many of us, our family relationships have been a humbling experience. That's all they've been. Does your heart yearn to apply some of these lessons to your life, but it just doesn't seem realistic under the circumstances? Hmm? Maybe, you want, maybe your family relationships, they've been characterized by years of sin, and now everything seems damaged or destroyed. You want to seek forgiveness, but the consequences won't disappear. What can you do? What can you do? Well, situations can vary, but I'd say this. Be content to reestablish a family relationship in righteousness that was once characterized by sin. Right? We can all do that. That's something simple to focus on. Be content to reestablish a family relationship in righteousness that was once characterized by sin. Maybe that means admitting you were wrong. Maybe it means having compassion on someone who mistreated you. Maybe it means a card or a phone call or an email, something like that. But instantaneous change is not required. may never be the case. Take it slow. Don't force it. Look to God for patience and strength. Sin does, it doesn't limit God's use of these, these situations to make us more mature in Christ. God's not limited. We might even lead a family member to salvation. And if the only thing that you bring to your church family is the humility of broken family relationships, I don't want you to despair. Don't despair. What does Scripture tell us? It says that's a great place to start. Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Here's what a humility means. It means you're prepared to be instructed in the Lord, no matter what your age is. You're prepared to be instructed. It means you're, you're ready to learn submission. To the, in the family of God, out of reverence for Christ. You're ready for that. More humility in our church family allows God's children to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, because they realize how much God has forgiven them, us, in Christ. True humility means you have much to contribute to the welfare of your church family. So, may God bless us in our family relationships. Heal us when we're injured by them and restore them according to his goodwill and his marvelous grace. For God's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according 
to the power that's within us, that's at work, his power at work within us. And that's ours through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, we pray for maturity. In ourselves, we desire it so that we might be mature as parents. We pray for it for our children, that you'd bring them to maturity. We pray for all of us that are learning maturity in the family of Christ, among the people of God. Lord, we, uh, we pray that you would help us to see these motivations that you've communicated to us in Scripture and that we would desire them, that we'd want to, that our families would motivate us to do godly things, to do righteous things, because we trust you and we have confidence in you. And Lord, do humble us so that we might not provoke our children those of us who uh, have this as a weakness. But, Lord, would you turn our example into a strength for our families? Help us to bring them up in the Lord and help us to act honorably towards one another uh, in the family of God. We thank you for our family structure. We thank you for what it's teaching us. And we praise you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.